Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. So did you ever find yourself in a situation that you were just, you knew what was going to happen next? I mean, you could kind of read the trends and you could see what was coming and you, you sort of knew what was going to be next, but then you were totally surprised. In fact, you were totally shocked that the unexpected happened and really just blew you away. You know, in sports, this is a big part of what adds to the drama and kind of what makes it fun. Because in sports, you often know who you think is going to win, but in the end, they don't. You know, many of you remember the story from 1980 when the U.S. hockey team defeated the Soviet Union on their way to the gold medal, this was an upset that shocked the entire world. Everyone knew what was going to happen, but then it didn't. Something else happened instead. Or many of you Giants fans might remember in 2007, the Patriots were on their march to immortality. They were undefeated. They were going into the Super Bowl against the Giants. And everyone knew the Patriots were going to win this game. They were favored by almost two touchdowns. And yet, the unexpected happened. The Giants pulled off a massive upset, thanks in part to this tremendous catch by David Tyree. This catch, this image, Giants fans will remember for the rest of their life. Not just because of its amazing athletic ability, but because of how it was unexpected. And they really didn't see it coming. Now, Kenny, this illustration is for you. I'm not anti-giant. They just repel people on their own because of how they play. There's nothing I can do about that. It's not my fault. Now, the unexpected isn't always positive, of course. In fact, oftentimes it's negative. That's what keeps us up at night, is we know things could happen. We know that bad things might be coming our way. The financial crash of 2008 ruined many people's lives. You know, life savings were lost, retirements were lost, homes were lost. And even though some of the indicators seemed to indicate something like this was coming, for most people, especially lay people who weren't in financial markets, they were totally shocked. And their lives were ruined by this unexpected pitfall. Or it can be very personal. Sometimes you might experience a diagnosis where you go in for an annual checkup. You think everything is great. You know what's going to happen. It's just going to be in and out. But the unexpected comes and your life takes a dramatic turn that you never saw coming. And so often for us, these unexpected changes impact our lives tremendously. And I believe this morning, as we study Revelation chapter 6, we're experiencing a tremendous surprise in the text. Okay, so we've been studying Revelation every week here at Beacon for about a month, and Robert and Trevor have been unpacking it so well and helping us understand the symbols and the images that are coming. In Revelation 4 and then 5, we've covered the last couple of weeks. And I want to remind you where we were at at the end of chapter 5. Okay, first of all, in chapter 4, we were introduced to the great throne room of God. That John was given an image that God was on a throne. And God was surrounded by the 24 elders 
who represent all of the people who have believed since the beginning of time, both Jews and Gentiles. He's also surrounded by the four living creatures. These living creatures are first mentioned in Exodus and now again in our text in Revelation 4 and following. Creatures like an ox, a man, an eagle, and a lion. And these 24 elders and the four living creatures are sitting around God in chapter 4. In fact, the four living creatures are famous because they are the ones who cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that poetic phrase has been famous in the Christian church ever since it was written in Revelation. So in Revelation 4, we see God's sovereignty established that he sits on that throne. Revelation 5, we talked about last week, Trevor unpacked it for us, was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Because first we found out that there is a scroll. That scroll has the good news of how everything in the world is going to be made right. And so we are so thankful to know that this scroll exists, that there is a sovereign plan in which every single thing will be made right. But then there was weeping because it was found that there was no one in heaven worthy of opening this scroll. So we were met by this fear that, wait, God's perfect plan would never be put into motion. It would never happen. It would never be actualized because no one could open it. But then, and only then, we were reminded that Jesus, who is the perfect lion and the perfect lamb, is the only one qualified to open the scroll. But he is, and he will. And the end of chapter 5 is a, is a spontaneous outpouring of worship, where the four living creatures and the 24 elders started to cry out in worship, so much so that the text says thousands of of angels joined them and they said in unison together to him who sits on the throne you know who that is and unto the lamb you know who that is right to them be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and then the four living creatures alone say amen which means so be it so the stage is set we know exactly what should happen next God's goodness, beauty, glory, and mercy will be poured out on the earth because everything is in place for God to make everything right. And we just read Revelation 6. That is not what happened. I think the reader, the first time they read this, would have been shocked, stunned, and sickened by the sudden turn here. Because Jesus has the scroll. And the seven seal image that we're talking about today is Jesus opening this scroll, seal by seal. But as he's doing that, the earth is getting worse and worse. In fact, it's becoming a horrible place. And through the next huge section of Revelation, there's going to be these sets of seven. Okay, numbers are important in Revelation. There's just two numbers that we're going to talk about today. The number seven in the biblical text means complete. It means finished. And you know where this comes from. It comes from the very first chapter in the Bible, right? That God created the earth in seven days. And after that, it was finished. And so these seven seals on this scroll are a symbol of completion. Now there's going to be three sets of seven. There's three seals, uh, th seven seals, and there's going to be seven trumpets, and then there's going to be seven bowls kind of throughout many, many chapters of the text. Most scholars believe that these three sevens are three different visions that are talking about the same thing. Okay? Because each of them ends in the same place at a cataclysmic, worldwide, calamity-type event. 
And all three of these sets of seven end in this same place. So many scholars believe it's three different visions describing a similar thing that's going to happen on the earth. You will find people that believe these are 21 things that need to happen in order. I don't quite think that's what the text teaches. It's also not super, super important because that's not the point. We're going to talk about what the point of these seven seals is today. In fact, today we're only going to talk about four seals. We're going to save the other three seals for next week. So it's kind of a two-part conversation about the seven seals. Today, the first four seals correspond with one of the most famous images in the Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four horsemen are not heroes, not even close. The four horsemen of the apocalypse bring judgment, they bring pain, they bring death. And as we experience the impact of these four horsemen, we see judgment coming upon the earth. So here's the other number that matters today. Four in Revelation stands for nature, the natural world, right? Think of the four seasons, which are a whole year, uh, the four points of the compass, which cover the whole earth. You know, if, if I told you today, listen, at the end of this service, I don't want you to go out to the north, the east, the south, and the west and tell everyone about the love of Jesus, you would know that, that what I'm saying is go everywhere, right? It's a common idiom that exists to this day. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse are encompassing all of the natural world going out. And so we're in the throne room. Jesus opens the first seal, and the four living creatures say, come. They're asking Jesus to come. But instead... A white horse went out. He was given a crown. He rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So the first horse is the white horse. Isn't that the hero horse? Anyone who's seen a Western knows the hero rides a white horse. This is a little bit confusing. But this is not Jesus on the horse. In fact, the, the vision from John is very consistent. Where is Jesus? He is holding the scroll opening the seals. He does not get onto this horse and ride away. If you're at all familiar with Revelation, at the end, there is another vision of Jesus on a horse. Okay, faithful and true. That is not this. In fact, this rider was given a crown, not one that he earned, but one that he was given. In fact, the, the text here is, talks about it being given more of in a temporary way. And he rides out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And this word is repeated intentionally. This is not a good thing to be a conqueror who goes out on a conquest. It's the same type of word that if we said, you know, he was a taker going out to take or a stealer going out to steal. To have this kind of a conquest is very immoral. It's very unnoble and it's very wrong. It's, it's obvious by the text. This is a bad thing that is happening. And yet we see this in our world right now. This first horseman of the apocalypse is active in the world right now. It's any empire that believes once I control the world, I will make everything right. Now, I don't know about you, but my small group had a great conversation this week. We were talking about the tension that exists between people who are strong on mercy and people who are strong on judgment. This came out of our text from last week. And by the way, both of those are attributes of God because the first thing you do is if you're strong in only one of those things, you're not sold on the people who are strong in the other one, right? We talked about mercy versus judgment. And we see here 
that he is going out and he is saying, if I rule the world, I will make everything right. Is there anyone here who can identify with that thought? I know I can. I've been very open about this. If you would just let me run the thing, it'll run so much more smoothly than the way you're running the thing. I've said this to more than one person in my life. And I've thought it more times than I've actually said it. Think, man, if I just ran this thing, it would go so much better than this clown who's running the thing right now. It's a common thought. In fact, it's kind of part of the leadership gift in a way, and it is part of the judgment bent. But in our world, that type of conquest always goes bad. Always. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And every single time an empire in the world said, we are going to go out, we will conquer, we will make everything right in the world once we control it, it has never worked. In John's day, the context this was actually written, this was the Pax Romana, that the Roman Empire controlled much of the known world, especially the known world to anyone who lived where John lived, and they ruled the world by force, and they enforced peace. This is consistent with the first time in the Bible when the four horsemen are mentioned. This imagery, we've told you before, most of the imagery in Revelation comes from the Old Testament. And there are four horsemen mentioned in Zechariah. And in the same way the four horses were sent out to patrol the earth, and they found the earth to be a peaceful place, but because of occupation, because of domination. Here was the Roman world. The 20th century was one of the most deadly centuries on record of dictators trying to force the world, to conquer the world, to make the world the way they thought it should be. World War I killed a generation of European youth. World War II, 6 million Jews killed by Hitler. Stalin, 20 million Soviet citizens. Mao, tens of millions of political enemies and peasant famine victims. Pol Pot, 2 million Cambodians. South Africa, millions of lives wasted during apartheid. All people work in this plan. He said, once I conquer the world, I will make everything right. And instead, it makes everything wrong. So again, the living creatures cry out for Jesus. They say, come. And then the second seal. But instead, another horse came out, a fiery red one, given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. This is much more personal. The conquest motif, we can almost explain away like, oh, those are totalitarian madmen. I don't have anything to do with those people. But this is talking about person-to-person hatred. That when we see someone, there's just something about them that we do not like. Whether they have something we want or they stand for something we don't like. And there's a murderous instinct that rises up. This horseman is alive and active in the world today. Hate is not dead. People have been murdering. This was the very first crime committed in the Bible. Cain killed his brother. And we have never been able to stop killing each other ever since. This horse is red for a reason. It's the blood of murder that's found. In fact, it's, it's the picture here is of the killing of those who can't even defend themselves. Right? He's a horse mounted with a sword going after those who he wants to kill. The third horse, starting to get a little bit more subtle, but it's all there. This third horse was a black horse holding a pair of scales in his hand. That's a popular image. What does scale stand for? 
justice, right? What's happening with the scale of justice? Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage oil and wine. What is this talking about? The original text talks about two pounds of wheat for a denarius and six pounds for a denarius, but the, the imagery here is clear. There will come a day when most people have to work all day just to buy food for themselves. A pound of wheat would be, two pounds is one person eating for a day of decent quality food. Six pounds of barley would be a small family eating subsistence food. And they would be spending all of their wages to eat for one day. Well, you can see how quickly this spirals into disaster because if you're putting all of your money into food, how would you pay for any of your other needs in life? How would you pay for shelter? How would you even think about education? How would you think about health care? And here's where the inequality comes in and the scales because the oil and the wine, well, they're untouched because who are they for? They are for the wealthy. The wealthy's food will be fine, but it is the workers who will struggle. The scales of injustice, this horse says that those who have will take from those who don't. Now, this may sound like an exaggeration in 21st century America, but Beacon has done work worldwide where we've met people who couldn't even drink clean water, let alone eat healthy food. And the injustice of knowing those who live paycheck to paycheck, we saw it this year more than ever. How many people are teetering on the edge that if this week's pay doesn't come in, I can't make this week's bills. And this horse is pushing that injustice, and this third horseman is alive and active in the world today. It gets even better. This is super fun, right? I was so excited to share this with you. I was just all morning, couldn't wait to tell you the good news. So, I guess I'm dead, fellas. Can you push me ahead? The fourth horse. It's from Revelation 6, 7, and 8. It says, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given a power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Tony, I have this verse on the screen for them. It's talking about death and Hades itself coming on a horse. And this word death in Greek is thanatos. Yes, all of you Avenger fans, they literally named him death. And Hades is an untranslated word which just simply means hell. Thanatos and hell himself came behind this fourth horse. And in it, we see famine, plague, and death by the wild beasts of the earth. Have we seen any of that this year? Have we seen death through plague? Have we seen death through the earth itself, through cataclysmic natural events? Of course we have. This fourth horse is active in the world today. Unfortunately for us, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are a regular part of life for us right now. So does that mean we're in the last days, Chris? Does that mean that this could be the last seven years of life here on this earth? I personally don't think so. I actually think there's room for a lot of these things to get a lot worse, which is tragic. But we're seeing this kind of difficulty every single day in the world. And here's how we can think of it. This is how life is experienced for us when we choose to rule ourselves. Because in the case of all four horsemen, 
Jesus is the one, he's in the throne room, and the horses are going out, they're operating independent of him. And it's not just the evil that is within us, but it's the enemy of God who's encouraging this evil that we find in our own hearts to go out, to rule ourselves, and to move in our own way. Because every time we try to rule ourselves, every time we look to a ruler, an ideology, a belief system, an elected official, or anyone else, we will always be disappointed. Instead, people are dying, killed directly by war, murder, through injustice, plague, and by nature itself. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, this is what you've always wanted. I'm going to give you a chance to experience it. So does that mean God is sending evil on the world? It's a good question. Uh, let me know what you decide. All right. This wasn't a surprise to God in any way. Jesus actually talked about this exact thing. One day he was walking with his disciples in Jerusalem, and most of them were from Galilee, which is like kind of a fishing village. So they were in Jerusalem, and they were just like, you know, a new person when they're in New York City. They're like, wow. Look at these buildings. So they were telling Jesus, look at this architecture. Look at this temple. Isn't it beautiful? And Jesus said, all of this is going to come crashing down. So there was kind of this thing the disciples do a lot. Jesus says something like that, and they all go, wow. Then they go over here, and they're like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know. So then they come back, Jesus, what does that mean? So this is what he told them. He said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Here's our passage. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famine. These are the beginnings of birth pains. That's an important image that Jesus used when he talked about what is happening in our world. There is a necessary pain that comes through the judgment of God in order to accomplish his will and his way in our lives. I've said it before. I wish we could learn without pain. I wish I could learn from your mistakes. That would be awesome for me to just like watch you go down a bad road and I say, well, I'm never going to do that. Thank you. It doesn't seem to work that way. There is a necessary pain that comes from God accomplishing his will, both in our lives and in our world, that we must go through. So I ask you again, is God sending evil on the world? Here's why that question frustrates us. What we view as being good is largely, in our estimation, what is actually benevolent and kind. It's when we view God as Santa Claus, that he's just this wonderful old guy, beard needs a little bit of shaping. Other than that, he's fantastic, gives us everything we want. That's what we view as being a good God. But good for God also means just. We've been talking about this for two weeks. If God is only mercy, if there is no judgment, then he's not all-powerful and he's not all-loving. And so, yes, God uses evil in our lives to accomplish his purposes. I actually think this is one of the most fundamentally important promises of the Christian faith, that God has said, I will use everything that comes into your life, even that which is wrong, even that which is evil, I will use it for my glory, that there is nothing in this life that will be wasted. No pain, no evil, no suffering. I will use all of it to accomplish my will, God says. 
And so the evil that is in this world, God allows it to continue. I actually believe that what's happening here, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, just to go on record a little bit, what I think is happening is Jesus is unveiling the scroll and evil is trying to make one last stand. And evil is going, we're going to take one more shot at this thing. And they're rising up once again. But in God's authority and his omniscience that he knows everything, he uses even that evil to accomplish his will. And so in that, we have to trust his sovereignty. Because think about this. When Jesus was on the earth, to every single person that knew him, that met him, that heard about him, when he died on the cross, it was viewed by every person as evil having won. They had put all their hope in Jesus. They had put their trust in him. And when he died, they were now like sheep with no shepherd. They each scattered. They each went their own way. And everyone who experienced it said, this is the most evil thing that could have ever come about, to have Jesus die. The son of God was killed by sons that he created. There's nothing more wrong and evil than that. But even the evil of being killed on the cross, God used for the greatest glory and for the greatest good and for the greatest accomplishment that we could be redeemed. And Jesus could have never risen from the dead if he hadn't first been killed on the cross. And so we trust his sovereignty to say, we see how you are using the evil that is in us, the evil that is in this world, the evil that comes from the enemy of God. We trust in your sovereignty that you are using it in our lives and in the way that you see fit, God, to bring about your goodness and your grace. And once he accomplishes his will for this world, then it's in his name that it's done. So we have to trust his sovereignty. When you're going through these things, when you're experiencing in your life conquest, when you see or you're touched by murder or injustice, when you see the horseman riding roughshod over your life, trust in the sovereignty of God. Know that he is still in control and he is using all of these things to accomplish his purpose. Second, <laughs> this might be obvious, but it's worth going on record. We should remain repentant. It's so easy to look at these four horsemen as something that others are doing wrong. That's a mistake. Each of us have these seeds in our heart. You could say, I would never conquer another, but have you never jumped the line in anything in your life when you had the opportunity? Have you never stepped ahead at work? Have you never stepped ahead? Are, do you not understand how a zipper merge works? We're back to the driving thing. You know. <laughs> Have you never taken the opportunity to take and jump in front of another? You say, Chris, I've never murdered someone. That's way too far. Jesus said, if you have rage in your heart, you might as well have committed murder. See, the seeds in this, they're, they're all in us. And so we have to have this posture of repentance that daily we come before God and we say, God, forgive us for the sin of conquest. Forgive us for the sin of rage. Forgive us for the sin of injustice. Forgive us for the times we put ourselves ahead of others. Forgive us, Father. We repent of these sins because the reason these trials, that's a very biblical word, trials or difficulties or frustrations, and actually trials and tribulations are kind of the same word, 
The reason they exist is so we can be reformed into the image of God. In all this, these are trials. Rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I know you've had trials this year. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We experience these trials so that we can be refined, and one of those moments of refinement is true, lasting repentance. And by the way, repentance isn't just apology. Repentance is both apology and to take a new tack. So we must remain repentant. And lastly, when we live in a world that is the presence of these four horsemen are everywhere, we should work to bring justice. And hear me out on this for a minute. We read Matthew 24 a couple of minutes ago where Jesus said, listen, this whole world is going to come crashing down. Well, the very next chapter is Matthew 25. Some of you are familiar with Matthew 25. Some of you are not. Matthew 25 is a chapter that Jesus talks at great length about the type of justice that we're called to bring to the world. We're called to feed those who are hungry, to give water to those who are thirsty, to bring strangers into our homes, to give clothes to people who don't have clothes, to look after people who are sick, and to look after prisoners. Jesus mentions those six specific ways that we're to bring justice into this world. But we so often forget the context of that instruction because the beginning of that whole statement from Jesus is this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. This is our passage. This is what we're talking about. He's not talking about, you know, just bring justice whenever you can. He's saying as the end of the world comes, as things get worse and worse and worse, we should work more and more and more to bring kindness and justice and goodness into the world. And this is going to be part of the final judgment that Jesus has on his people. In fact, those who he sends into Hades to see Thanatos, he says, why are you cursed? Because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. And he goes on to list all those six things. This is the context in which Jesus said we are to take care of the world. That those who have not will be sent to forever punishment. And those who have brought justice will be sent into the blessing of the Father to receive their inheritance. We are called to bring justice into these moments. You say, well, I'm supposed to work against the judgment of God? But if God's hammering somebody, am I not supposed to let it go? That's not on you. The way that God is working in someone's life, that's between God and them. Our call is to bring justice and kindness into every situation that we can in every way that we understand it. And, you know, this has been a big year for that in many ways. People have tried in their own way to bring justice to a number of important causes. And in many ways, it's been good. But there's just one detail that is kind of interesting that I want to talk about. There's a new rise of a type of activism called slacktivism. Have any of you heard of being a slacktivist? Any slacktivists in the room? Oh, you are. I could point at you, but that's all right. I'll be nice. 
What is a slacktivist? Well, this is, this is, by the way, all defined by sociologists. This isn't me talking. I'm just standing on science here. Nothing I can do. Okay? So, the Science Daily published a study that was done at the University of British Columbia. Their research showed that if people declare support for a cause on social media, it makes them less, less likely to donate or engage in actual life. Okay? Slacktivists make all their noise on social media and don't go help anybody. Posting it on social media doesn't make it happen, friends. Okay? If I need to take my Facebook down for a week, I will. But I'm just going on record. Just because you posted it doesn't make it real. In the same way, just because they didn't post it doesn't mean they oppose you. Step away from the mouse, people. Okay? Now, do I want to hear your opinions? I actually do. I love to hear your thoughts. But be careful because a slacktivist is only making noise and not bringing any actual justice. And what is the charge of the Christian? To bring justice. Okay? This is going to be a big month for this. You, you, you don't know this yet, but I want to let you know there's an election coming up. A <laughs> couple of guys running. Uh, they're super old. Um, and this is all we got. So um, I, I just hope that in this coming days and weeks that uh, so much of our passion uh, will be rooted in bringing justice. And I don't mean punishment. I mean helping people who are hurting. Because that's the call that Jesus has put on our life. The reaction that we have to the four horsemen of the apocalypse is to love people, to help people in the way that our Savior taught us. I mean, he left behind heaven, which was perfect. He left behind life with the Father and instead came to live on this earth where people treat each other this way and people treated him this way. But he did that to bring justice for you and for me. And in fact, we're going to move into a time of communion right now. I'm going to ask Robert and the band to come up and they're going to lead us through that exercise but I love this because it's, it's a tactile reminder that Jesus came and he said, I'm going to give everything I have to make the world right. I'm going to give my body. I'm going to give my blood. I'm going to leave behind heaven. And instead, I'm going to live on the earth. I'm going to be born in a stable that smells like, you know. And I'm going to live with people who act like, you know, so that I can bring justice and grace into this world. And he's teaching us to do the same. So would you pray with me? God, it's such an honor and a privilege anytime we have the opportunity to, to dig into your scripture. And the truths of it are confronting at times. Some of these passages are hard to read and they scare us. And we're not even sure what to make of it sometimes. But we stand strong on the constant of knowing who you are of knowing that your character is good and just and merciful. Your ways are good and perfect and pure. Sometimes we don't understand what you're doing. Sometimes we have doubts in our mind. We think, God, why, why would you do that? Sometimes we have the insecurities of this world to say, God, I don't know if we're going to make it. But Father, teach us every day how to follow you and your true ways of justice and love. And so we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.